Hey guys. Like a, oh, oh yeah, no, it's okay. That's fine. That's fine. Right, go for <laughs> yeah, it. I can count this. Go again. for it. Um, hey guys, welcome back to the Sisyphus Fifty Five podcast. Today we're joined by Elliot Sang. Um, some of you may know him from his YouTube channel, um, which I think is under the same name. Um, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah. Hi, I'm Elliot Sang. Um, my channel, you'll have it, you'll see it with my name. Uh, the 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 handle is Elliot Says Hello. And yeah, I do video essays on there about a variety of topics generally related to mental health, um, socialism, capitalism, and a little bit of Buddhism in there as of recently because I recently became Buddhist. And so I, uh, yeah, sorry, I just freaked out a second because it looks like my audio isn't recording on the platform. Uh, no, it looks like it is. It's, uh, if you oh. talk, I can see the, yeah, the waves. You're, oh, okay. I, I'm not yeah. seeing the waves for whatever reason. Oh, okay. But cool. Yeah. But yeah, that's me. Uh, <laughs> hello. Um, actually, I, so I didn't actually know about this. Could you, uh, go into how you got into Buddhism firstly? Yeah. So there's kind of a lot of small introductions you get to Buddhism in general, um, in like quote unquote Western society, like you'll see that there's a lot of like musicians and stuff and artists that like take interest in like quote unquote Eastern spirituality and stuff like that. And things like uh, meditation and mindfulness are, are fairly mainstream at this point. So growing up in the US, uh, I'm from New York, you kind of see it a little bit in media and there was always something of an attractive vibe to it for me in terms of like hey i like peace you know i like calm and it seems like it's good like especially as i grew up and became a very neurotic and anxious person it seemed like there was something that i should take a deeper look at but i always really struggled with not being able to focus and constantly worrying about a ton of different things and so meditation and mindfulness as i was picking it up conventionally just didn't seem like it was going to work for me I'm just not the kind of person that feels like I can sit down and like close my eyes and just like not think, which is generally how people teach it to you. Of course, the more that I've learned uh, slowly over the years, the more that I was like, hey, maybe this could be a little bit different than what I'm thinking. Uh, of course, you see like Thich Nhat Hanh books all over the place. Um, and I actually have a friend named Alex who introduced me a bit to Thich Nhat Hanh and to some, some Buddhist stuff when we were in college. And she uh, has just generally been, interest, been interested in spiritualism um, and, and spirituality uh, for a while now. And so some of that stuff I found like a little bit helpful. And then as of recently, maybe like a year ago or, or so, it's interesting. I can't quite trace the origin, but at some point I decided to dig more into Thich Nhat Hanh. I think... Maybe it started around when I was getting a bit into philosophy. Um, so one of the sort of origin points of my channel and what I do now is I made a video about a year ago, maybe over that, um, called, jeez, uh, what did I call it? It's had like one of those, it's one of those YouTube things where you have multiple titles on a video because you're trying to get the algorithm to like it. <laughs> um, it's about burnout. Um it is called How I Burned Out in My 20s as of right now. I have like red hair in there. 
And for that video, it was the first time I had really come across. I mean, I was reading a bit of bell hooks and stuff before that and like coming across a little bit of theory here and there. That was the first time that I actually read a book for a video because um, <laughs> I came across the book, The Burnout Society um, mm -hmm. by uh, Byung-Chul Han. And mm -hmm. I was really fascinated by it. I was fascinated by the art film that he made accompanying it. And it became a point of reference for me to think about some larger philosophical ideas that also connected with my personal place in life, my struggles with depression and my career and stuff like that. Um, it was actually nine months ago. Wow. Time. Um, and that was a point of which I was like, Hey, maybe philosophy isn't just like corny and maybe I should read more philosophy, uh, and theory and stuff. And maybe I could, right. I think part of why we shun things in life is because we don't think that they're for us. Cause we don't think we're, we're like capable of engaging with it in a, in a real way. So we're just like, ah, eh, it's corny. It's pretentious. Um, and so I think at, around that point, I was thinking a lot about my own life and I found some of the ideas of Buddhism to sort of be interesting in terms of analyzing it and in terms of figuring out what I was struggling with and how I can deal with it. Um, and particularly, I was fascinated to learn more about how Buddhism can be about helping people and not be about judging people, which I think you grew up with Christianity. Like I went to Catholic school almost my whole life. And you grew up around a sort of very judgmental religious environment, very like guilty religious environment, a lot about guilt, a lot about hard rules or hard particularities. And Buddhism felt a lot more like, hey, like here's some cool ideas and some general structures and, and stuff. But like it's not a deeply religious religion. There's a lot of like Buddhist scholarship that's like, actually the point is that there is no religion this, this is a non-religious religion and and irreligion and and there's like a lot of like more taking an interest in truth and taking an interest in like what's what's the way to live that frees you from all this stuff that i thought was quite interesting and so i began to dig more into Thich Nhat Hanh. I, I read the book um uh the heart of buddhist teaching uh, I've read some of that. That's from Thich Nhat Hanh. And I read a, a book, um, What the Buddha Taught by Walpola Rahula, which I really like. And I was really drawn to, again, like this uh, almost sense of like uh, thinking about Buddhism like you would think about a philosophy. And at the same time, I was noticing that there's like a lot of different sort of pushes and pulls within Buddhism and like a lot of different sects of Buddhism. And there is this emphasis on uh, like a secular Buddhism that's been popular in the West that felt a little bit to me like it was almost a little too far in the direction of like, yeah, this is not religion. It's not spiritual at all. Actually, it's actually we're just like wearing suits and stuff and, and drinking water and like it's fine, um, which almost felt a bit like a rebuking of like the traditionalist oriental quote unquote, like aspects of Buddhism that kind of put people off where it was like, actually, instead, like, what about secular Buddhism? You know, and like it's a bunch of white guys this time. And it's like you wouldn't even think we're talking about something that's Eastern or Buddhist at all. It just mm -hmm. seems like we're chill. So I was like really intellectually kind of interested as well as like and in digging into like, what is this actually like? What is this for me? What does what, what, what actually works about Buddhism and what doesn't? like in terms of what people are conveying about it. And 
that kind of led to this path that eventually led to me making the McMindfulness video, which was based on a book that I had started reading a year prior, which is called McMindfulness by Ronald Purser. McMindfulness itself is a term that a some like some scientist, like some uh, a person who was like a philosopher, a psychologist, actually kind of coined in the nineties. Um, and I was fascinated too about like learning about the ways in which Buddhism is pulled into these pro-capitalist, everything is fine directions that seemed so antithetical to what I have always believed in. I've always been like rebel against everything, systems broken, like even since I was like five, you know, like I was 10 years old listening to Rage Against the Machine and being like, this is cool. Mm-hmm. Speaking of which, Rage Against the Machine, like their first album cover, right? It's, it's mm-hmm. um, Taekwondo, like self-immolating. So that kind of pieced the things together for me where I was like, oh, like I can do this. Like I can be Buddhist. I can dig into this. Um, I, I don't have to feel so strained about what I call myself and what I don't call myself or whether I'm super of a denomination or not. I can just like, be, like not even believe in this, but I can just kind of work with this and live by this because it works for me. It aligns with what I think is true of life. And at the same time, I can be critical and like be aware of like all the different dimensions that people take it in and say like, hey, here are some things that are actually not what I think work. Like here are some things that I think are bad, actually, that are attached with a lot of Buddhism and at the same time do it on my own. Similar to like how a lot of Christians are very critical of Christian organizations, institutions. So yeah and that kind of culminated in that video which i think is maybe one like top three videos on my channel mm-hmm. um and part of it being like so good i guess is that it's a culmination of such a long journey for me mm. yeah do you um like just to hang on the idea of mick mindfulness where do you find that separation between uh when mindfulness and buddhist teachings are used kind of in the service of capitalism or in the service of quote unquote self-improvement or productivity and when they're appealing more to like the traditional spiritual uh, aspects of mindfulness that's a really good question and also i think i need you to ask it again because okay i'm kind like, of like ooh, like i don't know how yeah. to answer yet like, like, do you, I mean, it's, I'm guessing it's not just one thing, but what elements do you think are missing from like secular Buddhism that are apparent and integral to um, traditional, more spiritual practices of Buddhism? And if it is spiritualism, which is probably the most like obvious answer, what does that mean to you? Well, actually, I don't even know if it is spiritualism because, um, I think the older I get, the more I am kind of like, eh, maybe spiritualism isn't even for me. Like, I always felt I was a very spiritual person, um, even to the point where, like, like, I just have always felt a knack for it, like a knack for even astrology. Like, I'm really good at reading charts, and I was really interested in spiritual aspects of Christianity and, and spiritual sort of uh, aspects of Buddhist practices. But what you, what you find in Buddhism is that... Um, it is kind of not that spiritual. It is more so, well, at, at its core, it is a dude who was like, 
here's here's how life works right it was just like this very i guess very smart and charismatic dude uh in you know the buddha if you will who went through this life experience and went through a lot of thinking and was like you know what here's what's important here's what's not and i think what was really important about buddhism that i think is still important today is that it is very responsive to the environment it is a very responsive thing to like what are people suffering with and how can we create some sort of system of thought and some and outline some important values and important struggles and outline a social totality almost so there's, there's a connection with marx that will illustrate to people like what they're suffering with and how they can liberate themselves from it and i don't even know if that is particularly spiritual because there's a lot of practices of buddhism for instance, there's a lot of this in China that are quite interested in a spiritual reading of Buddha, a spiritual reading of like even gods, right? In Japan, there's like Buddhist gods and Buddhist representatives and spirituality. But there's also at its core, not necessarily much emphasis on that. Like a lot of what Buddha's early sort of like the, the parables that are told of Buddha are people who are coming up to him and being like, so what is like going to happen after we die or like is there something that happens when we achieve nirvana that brings us to somewhere else or like is this god or is this something that i can do spiritually so that the spirits can help my father in this particular situation and buddha's general response in all of these parables is like dude i don't know like that's not even important <laughs> um what's important is like you're freaking out over a bunch of stuff you can't control and you need to not do that is essentially what Buddha would always be saying. So it's a, it's not even a, I guess you could almost say it's like an agnostic way of thinking because it's not that Buddha was dismissive of spirituality It's that he was a bit reticent uh, and, and a bit reject rejectionary. Is that a word? Um, he would reject uh, a lot of the, the tendency to rely on specific spiritual doctrine and, and, and faith and belief in that sense. Mm hmm to determine like how you should live your life and determine as well like these parts of the world that we can just simply not know like it, it, we can't know what happens to us after we die it just seems pretty impossible to do that and so us thinking about it and spending this time thinking about it and constructing the way that we live in day-to-day -day life orienting towards a particular doctrine that says what we're going to have what, what's going to happen after we die just seemed like this entirely problematic concept to the Buddha. He was instead just like, hey, what do we know, right? The Four Noble Truths. Like, we know that there's suffering. We know that there is, uh, you know, damn, I'm really bad. There's, there's, there's <laughs> suffering. There's an escape from suffering. And there's a path towards liberation, hmm. right? Um, and then there's a fourth one that I'm forgetting right now. So this is how good yeah, I am. Yeah, it's it? like, it's uh, suffering is like constant in life and then suffering yeah. is caused by desire and to end suffering is to like end that desire and then that is through doing like the the eightfold path or something like that right that's essentially yeah. how it is it's like um like suffering dukkha right then there's the cessation of suffering as well as like the one that i'm kind of forgetting about which happens after yeah we we go through the noble eightfold path um and that's something that if you look at it is not really saying anything about like a god or about angels or ghosts or 
anything sort of particularly spiritual in the sense that we would think of spirituality. It's it's basically philosophy. It's basically like, hey, this is what we know in life is that there's suffering. And I don't think anybody could argue logically against that. I don't think anybody could argue logically against that humans fight against suffering too, like try not to suffer, right? Um, maybe there's some spiritual aspects in terms of like how it's discussed, but ultimately well, i think i think like the when you get into like the karmic cycles and like reincarnation that's probably right the, where pe some people probably get like the spiritual vibes from maybe yeah i mean most interpretations of reincarnation is going to be spirit pretty spiritual mm -hmm. right like it seems like a pretty spiritual concept yeah but even that i think is like very up for interpretation and something that even like so Buddha Dasa is a thinker that I'm pretty interested in. And he was a Thai uh, preacher, uh, you could say, a Thai teacher of Buddhism that was quite prominent in the tw early 20th century. And his thing was like, there is no rebirth, which is like <laughs> a lot of a lot of other uh, monastics were just like this. I don't. What are you doing? Um, but his point was like, yeah, like the point is like when you get to, the point of Nirvana is that you get there and there's no religion and there's no rebirth. And that's a particular interpretation of what rebirth is as well, because mm -hmm. it, rebirth is not necessarily like you die and then all of a sudden, well, you're a squirrel. Um, it's like life continues. Mm -hmm. And the more that we understand, like even non-dualism non is, is something that I'm very interested in. And it's something that the way when you talk about non-dualism, it's hard not to sound like, you know, we woo, we woo. It's hard not to sound like you're, you're, you're doing a spiritualist thing. But it doesn't have to be that. Not necessarily there's anything super wrong with that either. But it doesn't have to be that. It's just the understanding, like when you look in another person's eyes, you can kind of see yourself. Because you see that we're all in life. And life is the ultimate constant through which things regenerate. And it might not look like it's regenerating. It might look like somebody, you know, and their body is dead. But like as life is continuing, what is that if not a rebirth? Because... Like that's just a continuous thing that happens throughout years and years. It's constant. And that's the, also the thing that we do. Right. So yeah, it's kind of complicated. It's kind of one of those things with Buddhism where I think to get more to the heart of your question, it's not so much about um, a spiritual aspect that's lost in like conventional modern secular Buddhism. It's more so one thing that I think is really lost is a sense of morality. It's a sense of something that, so a lot of what was really interesting about the McMindfulness video, I read another book for it too, which is uh, Buddhism Under Capitalism, a recent kind of compilation of essays. And you get a sense first that like Buddhism has always adapted to different systems, like since the beginning. Excuse me. There were political systems all over the world, all over throughout Asia. Uh, systems of ownership and Buddhists kind of figured things out. And so some Buddhists owned slaves, like some monastics owned slaves, monastics traded, monastics owned property. Some monastics were ascetics, some monastics did not own property. Like it was just a matter of adjusting to the environment, just like any kind of human thing. Hmm. What you notice though, is that people will adjust things according to what works for them. And with that, if today's day and age is is you know dictated by neoliberalism and capitalism 
the Buddhism of today will in popular circles, like as it is in the most prominent spaces, it will be an adaptation towards that. It'll be an adaptation towards neoliberalism mm -hmm. because we adapt to survive, right? But with that comes a lot of loss of certain aspects that make it so that you lose certain key parts. And I think we have a similar conversation about the left too, where it's like neoliberalism really has done a number on the left, right? Mm -hmm. Really, They really got us with that one, <laughs> you could say. Because a lot of the modes of which we thought about life are very much affected by how we've all had to adjust towards neoliberal order, for instance, in the United States. And so what I say morality with, with regards to Buddhism, there has always been an understanding, at least among certain teachers throughout the years in, in Buddhism, that the, the point is not to just sit and meditate. Like sitting and holding hands and meditating and going, whoa, is not doing really the thing. Uh, and a lot of Buddhists have been throughout the many centuries uh, emphatic about how like, no, like you have to go out into the world and you have to help people. And you have to also recognize like there's all these things going on. And if you just detach from it and don't engage with it and say, well, everybody will get to Nirvana eventually, then that's not even a Nirvana for real, right? Like you're not even really doing the thing because you're really in your, in a sense, just removing yourself from your environment and removing yourself of responsibility in a sense towards upholding the sanctity of life towards being uh, truly like in community with people, which mm -hmm. is part of how you do the thing. So um, I think that that's what's missing just in general is that there's uh, a sense of people using Buddhism to escape a sense of responsibility towards others, to escape the sense that they might have to think about problems in the world and think about capitalism and think about their job. I mean, the Noble Eightfold Path is like right there. And it says, for instance, like, right livelihood is important. And so you can't be like, I'm a Buddhist, I am on my path to Nirvana, I'm going to figure out a way to do that while also being an arms dealer, you know, while mm -hmm. also being a billionaire, like, it just doesn't really work that way. Mm -hmm. But that gets lost on people, because there's so much of a focus under a neoliberal order, I guess you could say, on an individuation, and on a self actualization that is particularly about, let me get away from everybody. And let me be this perfect, unique snowflake that figured everything out for myself. And that is so cool that other people will only benefit from me. Like the best way for people to benefit from my presence is to have observed me and tried to be like me, <laughs> you know? Yeah, I think it's a, it, it's, it's almost like one of the elements of like the four noble truths uh, that, you know, desire causes suffering is completely, um, like in contradiction with like the ethos of neoliberalism and consumerism and even like the idea of self-actualization or like becoming like a, a better person. It's the desire to, um, to do something, to become something that you're not, which, uh, you know, Buddhism isn't really for that. It's not suggesting that you should change and become someone better. It's just accepting that you should, that you should, you know, be present and then work from there. It's not giving any sort of like program, um, 
so I like in my opinion, there's like a fundamental like uh, misreading there. Um, but now I'm I'm kind of curious on like a larger scale. How do you think Buddhism could play a role in politics today, especially when it comes to leftism and like the discourse you see online? Wow, um, <laughs> I'm impressed by how well you like made that into like a very succinct question. I've had a lot um, of coffee really... this morning, so. <laughs> <laughs> you're also just really good at words. Um, <laughs> let me take a sip of my ginger ale. All right. I think... That was so pretentious. I think... Um, <laughs> so I've talked about this before. Um, mm-hmm. and Like, to some degree of, like, I think that there's something in Buddhism that could be really useful and really um, powerful to left politics to leftist communities online to leftist organization to leftist theory and philosophy and something of a response that i get sometimes is like uh boo like (laughs) spiritualism get it out the stage right which is part of why i'm like emphatic about like not only just because of my own experience but like also i just want to emphasize the people that i'm not sitting here and being like this believe in this ghost and you got it right like Mm -hmm. it's not nearly at all about that but um, for one, I think if you look at Buddhism in terms of what those teachings are, um, and, and the, na- the, the Noble Eightfold Path, and, and when we talk about like this sense of morality and the sense of um, contributing to the world in a way to where you're, you know, having that understanding of non-duality again, like if other people are suffering and you're not suffering, that's still, you're still suffering because life is interconnected. And like, if you're self-actualizing, but other people are suffering, like you're not self-actualizing because there's no self. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's something really radical about that. And I think really, as you put it, antithetical to what we're kind of fed, uh, and what we kind of understand as like life, uh, because of capitalism and this evolution of capitalism that we're in or devolution uh, and, and this, this, this sort of rise of neoliberalism, you have this um, intense focus again, like on individuation and a particular brand of individuation that says like, Hey, you're a self, you have this very unique life and nobody's going to know anything about it except for you. And that's why you have to pick the thing that works best for you and just go on your own path until you hit the, the peak and you're, you're finally like you fully and you've made the, the best of yourself. And if you haven't made the best of yourself, then that's, that's bad. Like the point of life is to, to like have this construction that there is a self, which is just like Buddhism is like, no, <laughs> right? Like, you have to like, that's such an important part of Buddhism that gets lost. It's like no self, right? Even no present, right? Like part of what you go to the present first is to sort of realize like eventually like, Hey, present, past, future, it's all kind of made up. Right. But like for a, a doctrine or if you, if you will, or for a, a, a teaching to say like, there is no self and we are all interconnected deeply. And the suffering of others is also our suffering. That, for one, has a very important 
it's just a very important repudiation of, of our current state of being, which is to say like, hey, other people are suffering, but I'm doing well. So like, there's got to be a justification for this somehow, right? Which like, that's how it is, right? Like that's that's kind of something we all internalize and we all have to grapple with. But also the sense of like, when I, I think in, in terms of leftist spaces and online organizing and online leftism and all that, So I'm not like God of the left, you know, like I can't, I'm not here to like sit and like act like I know exactly what, how to fix the online left. There's a lot of people that will, I guess, try to be that. Mm -hmm. Um, But what I've noticed would really like people would really benefit from is like, for one, like chilling out um, because when you see the common struggles within leftist spaces, it always comes back to a sense of people like not being able to have an inner sense of peace with anything like being, not being able to say like, this is what I'm okay with, or this is what I understand like is bad or something that I am a little uncomfortable with, but I can deal with it. There is a constant focus on like, everything has to be something that I'm comfortable with. Mm. And also that if I'm made uncomfortable by something, I have now the justification to burn this shit to the ground, which isn't good for like accomplishing group tasks. It's not like the best way to do that. I think we look sometimes back at like leftist organization and leftist revolutions, leftist struggles and ones that we see have had successes and we say like, man, why can't we do that? And a lot of it comes from the fact that in those moments of success, in those times where groups, you know, came together and collectively achieved a a task, nobody within the group was like, this is perfect. Or this is going to solve a larger vision of existential like problematics. It was okay, but we, we should probably integrate schools though, you know, like, or, mm-hmm. Hey, we should probably make some more money than this. But that's what politics is. It's agreements. It's not, you know, it's not about, to my understanding, having some large philosophy about the perfect orientation of everything. Like utopian thinking is useful as a construct, but it is not politics. It is, it is, you know, fiction, it is creativity, it is ideas, it is ideology. But politics isn't dictated by ideology, really. It's, it's, it's very, you know, real politic, right? It's very necessitation. It's very like a bunch of dudes realize that they don't have enough food. And so they're like, maybe we should move to a town closer that has more food. And then they leave that town, right? Like, these are the kinds of like, I mean, a lot of it is not really like that, obviously. (laughs) But like, these are the kinds of things that go into the the decisions that people make is just a a practical approach to something. And so it is easier to organize into a collective when everybody's able to say, okay, but we're trying to get this particular thing done because we know or we at least believe it to be something that will be better for us. Mm -hmm. And... What I think happens to a lot of people is that they grow up in neoliberalism with an understanding that politics is all about 
your individuated perfect sense of how the world should be and perfect sense of who's evil and who's good and how to be good and how to not be evil. And everything sort of becomes about the visionary and not about accomplishment of any type of task. So it doesn't matter that you didn't get anything done as long as you and your couple of friends like are right. You're all right about the world. You're all right about exactly what the problem is. And you're all going to go on Twitter and talk about it. And that's what matters. It doesn't matter that you are still fundamentally doing the same things with your lives. And you can be like, well, I go outside, actually. I actually do organize. But then the organizing is like some like vanguard of 10 dudes who sit and talk about particular Leninist books and then go back and then do the same thing that everybody else does, right? It's nothing. It's not, you're not actually doing political work, which here's the thing. I think I, like one of the tweets that really, I saw a tweet recently that really was, I I thought was really smart, but I can't remember who tweeted it. But it was somebody who said, like, people keep asking what the problem is with the left and why we keep, like, struggling. Uh, and I think everybody keeps ignoring the fact that, like, we're outnumbered. We have less resources. We are decidedly very small in comparison to the opposition. Mm-hmm. Especially when you understand the opposition is not just, like, a bunch of right-wing fascist, like, paramilitary groups or whatever, but, like, the order the system, right? Obviously, like, you're not going to outnumber the system, you're not going to have more resources than the system. So obviously, you're going to be at a bit of a disadvantage. And that's going to lead to a lot of L's. What you have to do then is you have to make compromises and say, okay, well, we can't accomplish all this. But here's something we can do tomorrow. Here's something we can do this month. Here's something we can do this year. And yes, throughout your entirety of your life, especially throughout your, your theoretical work and your theoretical conversations and throughout your general, the general path of what you try to do in your life, you have a larger vision that you'll never necessarily expect to get to within your lifetime, but that you understand is uh, the, the way things should be. Mm-hmm. That's sort of the life of an activist. That's sort of the life of a radical. You die knowing that it's, it's never going to happen within your lifetime and you live that way too. But that doesn't mean like, let me not participate in anything. Let me not like, like, okay, like you don't like the DSA. Cool. But like, then what, what are you doing? Like, okay, you don't like your local, like at some point, if you keep falling out with every group, the problem might be you because like there's, there's issues that are happening. And I think it's even, it's a very kind of standoffish way to put it, but like, so what, first of all? And second of all, I think part of why we see this tendency so much in the left is just because we're seeing it so much through social media. And if we look at what Twitter is and what, I guess, Threads now is and all these other sites, it is literally, it's neoliberal, right? And the point is individuation. The point is that you have your special particular platform with your catered, alg- your catered algorithm and your particular following and that's what it sells you. So, of course, the tendency is going to be towards that type of thinking, even subconsciously in all the different interactions you have on those platforms. I think, uh, yeah, in, in sorry to cut you off, but like... No, go for it. In, uh, it's this book, Elite Capture. He talks about um, yes, this yes. thing called like value capture, 
where it's like you could initially be having very good like political discourse on an online platform but just like the nature of the system itself is going to like gamify it and it's going to make certain things more rewarding than other things and it's going to like start simplifying these like values so like a really you know interesting nuanced arguments about theory is going to be less like prioritized and get less likes than you know like some meme about like a transphobic person or something like that and and you know that in itself might you know it might still be effective but it might not be like as intellectually effective or like like in terms of like activist work all it does is just kind of feed into like the the this like system that just becomes more and more like simplified and eventually people's values shift and they care more about like likes and like what you said about like portraying themselves as like politically um correct instead of like actually engaging in in the actual political process or activism yeah yeah i think yeah you're you're speaking about uh olufemi taiwo's book mm-hmm. um and he's on point so much and i think what happens there is like first of all the tendency then becomes like well look at these assholes and i don't really like doing that either um because it's just it's just how we are as humans is we adapt again mm-hmm. like we're constantly adapting to things and a lot of what is the most interesting and important about what we do is what we refuse to adapt to right or what we refuse what we intend to change but you can't i can't necessarily sit and just blame people for for instance excuse me i can't sit and blame people for wanting to build a nice platform I can't sit and blame some, you know, radical like Marxist Leninist podcaster for being like the reason that I get a lot of likes on my tweets is because I tweet fire, you know, and like just leave it there. Like mm-hmm. obviously you're going to feel that way and that I don't even necessarily think you're 100% wrong on that. I also am like not interested in like a defeatism either because I think Ultimately, there's something very like overwhelming about talking about neoliberalism and the way that we talk about neoliberalism, neoliberalism and the capitalist order. Maybe it's so influenced by the theoreticians that are popular in the 20th century that are basically like everything is captured in advance. We failed. Marxism failed. What are we going to do now? Nothing. There's nothing to do. Um, but there is something very spooky about the realization that YouTube will literally give you all the money and views you want, no matter like what you're saying in your video, as long as it's meeting what they needed to meet, like, which is that it's advertiser friendly and that it gets uh, views and clicks. Um, and, and if it does that, then you could be, you could have the most anarchist shit to say in the world. You could have the most deep understanding of Marx or the most, the best historical understanding of revolutionary struggle in the world. And you to be like, shit. Yeah. Fuck. Yeah. Like Susan is like, all right, cool. The Susan step mm-hmm. down. Whoever is on top yeah. of YouTube. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Like the execs are just like, this is fire. Great. Keep going. Mm-hmm. And they have no interest in what you're actually saying. Like people love to believe that they're being shadow banned. Like people love to be like, yeah, yeah, YouTube is just like fucking not letting people see my videos because I'm too radical. Um, 
which it's just not how it works. And we all know that it's not how, that that's not how it works. That's part of the scary thing of the internet. At the same time, um, we have to acknowledge it, right? We have to acknowledge it and we have to work within it to change it so that it doesn't keep happening. We can't just sit and be like, damn, it's over. Like, we got here to this point where neoliberalism has co-opted everything. It's so good at co-opting things. Everything bad is going to win. All, th- all the good things are going to lose. Mm-hmm. I-, I talk about Paulo Freire, uh, Paulo Freire like all the time in my videos. And it's always just the same quotes from Pedagogy of the Oppressed because it always sort of, sort of resonates with me and how I look at everything where he talks about uh, a type of sectarianism. And he says that the right is the, the right winger is the born sectarian because he believes that there's a natural, like you have to fight for that particular type of order to resist against human nature or whatever. But there's also the leftist sectarian that thinks that everything historically is just going to happen the way that it happens because people will always do this particular thing and everything is just going to go this particular way. It's it's it doesn't make for good politics and it's also just like not great mm-hmm. um, because if you believe that, then like what's the point? Um, and there's so many things that got accomplished in leftist struggle where people were like, dude. It doesn't really matter what the overall order of everything is and what the overall like neoliberal order has dictated and what got co-opted and what didn't get co-opted and what values got shifted or whatever. I I need you to pay me a living wage. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that's it. Fuck all the other shit. You could have it. But I'm, right now I'm fighting for a living wage. And like once yeah. the, if I win this fight, I got a new fight to pick. But like. That's the point is that you, 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 you look at the situation and you say, here's what I'm going to fight for right now. And on this side is going to be somebody that I disagree with. On that side is going to be somebody I disagree with. The whole conversation that people have about that too really pisses me off because um, there's like this general, it's like this generality of like, yeah, like, you know, if the, like we need like ex-military and we need like ex-Nazis and we need all these people and like the left is so bad because it pushes everybody away. And it's like, context matters like if a person is on your side right now fighting for a union to be born then you work with that person so that that union gets born Mm -hmm. that's what it is it's not that like this person is part of your team it's not that this person is like part of some larger struggle it's not that this person necessarily is good that is what politics is you get things done and because everybody on these social media apps is so like I mean, that's such a generality, whatever, uh, is so oriented towards like not getting things done and like focusing more on like correctness and like individuation. Then it's like people don't even like realize the potentiality that exists everywhere. Mm. Like there's so much potential for leftist wins everywhere. Mm-hmm. But the people who want to ostensibly do those things are more busy on Twitter talking about how fucked everything is. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe that's the problem. Uh, maybe the problem is just also that there's like, that's maybe we are fucked. Who knows? <laughs> but for me, from my standpoint, it's like, even if I know I'm going to die tomorrow, I will still fight for a particular thing today, even mm-hmm. if it seems minute, because I think it can get done and I think it is good. And that's, I think the way that we should look at things. And I do think Buddhism contributes to that and that in a way because it gives you a sense of like hey like there's a lot of things that are completely out of your control 
it doesn't give you an opt out to completely eschew engaging with other people mm-hmm. because other people are still there and there is still suffering and there is still the cessation of suffering and there is still the path. So mm-hmm. keep walking that path. Yeah, no, I, I, I personally, like, I agree with everything you're saying with, um, with regards to how Buddhism could be useful, especially in philosophical terms. And I also just think like, it's such a good parallel with um, just on an individual level, how mindfulness or Buddhism can lead to effective change. Like I always think of like the, if somebody was like an alcoholic and they're going to like, they have like an almost like utopian vision of like their life if they were sober. And it's like, you know, they have like a, a family that's together. They're way more in shape. They're like, they have more money. They're like, they're, they're just like healthier. And it's like this beautiful image, but it's so overwhelming and they're not going to be able to live up to it, especially if they just keep waking up every day, like with a bunch of beer bottles by their bed. And Buddhism would very much like go against that sort of utopian vision. It's like, and it's also, it's that idea of self-actualization, this idea that like, you can, you just got to like be the best person you can be. And like, you know, it's kind of a good message, but it like, it's a little bit overwhelming. Buddhism would just tell this person, like you, it's day by day and you wake up and you sit with like the craving of alcohol, for example, and you just ask yourself, where's that craving coming from in a non-judgmental way. And you can see this like workout in therapy with people that are addicted um, that this sort of technique just works, works amazingly. Like they don't have to like, it's not this like top down process of like, Oh my God, I need to change everything in my life. It's this bottom up process where you're just like starting from literally the present. And I think it's the same thing in, in politics that, that you're talking about is that instead of projecting this utopian vision of like, oh my God, we need to do like all of these things and it's overwhelming and you quickly become really pessimistic. It's it's better to literally just start from like the the, the bottom up from like the ground and and work your way up. And you're right, like most leftist actions that were successful in history weren't trying to like impose some sort of utopian vision. Those usually were kind of violent in their end product it's usually the ones from the that, that were just emerging from the circumstances that they had and were just trying to meet the the requirements like there's something very buddhist about that and i just think i'm sorry i'm ranting but i just think in general with like um uh like like the reason why i liked Camus is because he he says like i don't really care about metaphysics at all i just care about whether or not we we should keep living like that's the only important question I think with Buddhism, the same thing where there's just this kind of disregard over the abstract, like abstractions, what's real, what's not real. Um, it's, it's, it's what's important, like in the moment in front of us. And I actually think that a lot of online discourse, and I think the reason why neoliberalism has been so effective is because it has really pushed this idea that the abstract is the most important. The thing that isn't real is the most important. And that's why, that's why I really like Baudrillard because he's, he's, he doesn't say with, you know, Marxism, it's the point of production is the issue. He says it's the point of consumption. We've all become consumers. We're just consuming like this abstract. Uh, we're not living in reality anymore. We're not engaging in it anymore. And it's just kind of slowly turning into this very kind of like a cynical, um, passive kind of acceptance of the conditions and this idea that we can't change anything or we can't do anything. Like we just need to be more present politically, I think. 
that was that was my rant. <laughs> no, well, that's not a rant at all. I mean, I'm the I'm the ranter, like <laughs> so far in this conversation. That was very succinct, and very you were a thousand percent right, and a thousand percent about like the abstract, right, being this kind of uh, this emphasis, mm-hmm. right, and I think. So there's like a, a lot of wild different things that I can like, like directions I can pull in with everything, like what you just said. But there's a couple things that I, like one thing I want to get at the heart at that I think you, you've hit at too. I think the alcoholism and addiction conversation is actually a great framework for it, which is that like, from my understanding, the path to getting over an addiction or getting over a condition, um, which it, like that's even wording it that way is like the problem, right? Mm-hmm. Like people think you go to, you know, Alcoholics Anonymous, you show up for a couple of classes, you get to a nice place and then you're done. You've, you've conquered alcoholism. Whereas people who are, you know, recovering alcoholics, recovered alcoholics who are no longer alcoholics and other forms of addiction too, will generally always tell you that it's, it's like, it almost feels like it's always on the, on the corner like it's always around the corner it's still there it's more that each day you're making that choice right you have the thing in your life that that thing that you remember you have the class you go to the therapist whatever that orients you to taking the other path Mm -hmm. and that's the point it's not the arrival towards a destination that really matters it's that each day you are making those choices. And I think there's uh, an important thing there that it, maybe it's at the heart of like every good thing, <laughs> which is that understanding of cycles versus beginnings and ends. Mm-hmm. Um, pe- when people are very attached towards the idea that things begin and things end, where, but once people get that feeling for a cycle and feeling for a process, that's always what makes them feel like, they're better like Mm -hmm. makes them feel better about it but also what accomplishes the goals Mm -hmm. it's not that you get you get the thing it's that you did the things that like in that process is that in this very moment you are making the choices you're walking the path and once you stray off the path then you start going to experiencing all those other things but then you can always get back on the path and i think that like Buddhism provides an extremely good sort of structure uh, for, for, for embodying that because even the concept of nirvana is greatly misunderstood mm-hmm. because the concept of nirvana is understood as like Buddhist heaven. And that's not what it is. There's a lot of readings of nirvana. Um, and I think the truest reading of nirvana, which say that nirvana can happen at any moment. Like it could literally happen right now. Where we could be like like in Nirvana right now, mm-hmm. as we have this conversation, and then it could just go, like for two seconds, three seconds, whatever. And that's how it actually works. And if you think even about like the concept of heaven, right? Like there are moments in life where you feel like you're in heaven, and then it kind of goes. And it's not just happiness. It's a moment where it's like everything is okay. I am calm. I am at peace with everything that really feels like heaven. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of what people have to get in their heads is like, it's not about arriving at a particular destination. Sure. And, uh, and this is where people get so obsessed with like the local and the small 
And, you know, I have a lot of anarchist friends, but I think that this is maybe something like a tendency in anarchist thinking that can sometimes be problematic is this idea of like, we can't know, we can't know. And so we had to get to the really small, small point, like, like this particular village, right? Like mm-hmm. this particular part of uh, this particular city in this particular time period, they did this and this and this and this. Mm-hmm. And so we can generally say that this would be good for them, but we can't say that about the full city. We can't say that about the country. We can't, I can't speak for you. You can't speak for me. Fuck that. Like we can obviously speak for each other in a lot of different ways. Obviously there are social totalities. That's something that's so great about Marx, which I think Marx is deeply misunderstood by a lot of Marxists and by a lot of like antagonistic people towards Marx. Like Marx is saying it's a process. Capitalism, capital is a, a value motion, right? It is processes. And Marx is saying that like, at the end of the day, here are some qualities that we are noticing are basically true as long as this thing is going on. People are getting robbed of their value because they're being oriented towards having a value and being forced to sell that value mm-hmm. towards people who own means of production. And they're not even getting good value for it. But the problem isn't even necessarily how much value they're getting for their labor is that they are being placed in a position of having to have a value and having to sell it in order to survive mm-hmm. and what that does to you. And then what you consider to be valuable as a result. And that's where you have these ideas of, um, that's where we get the idea of alienation and we get the idea of, um, of uh, commodity fetishism. Mm-hmm. I, I saw a reading of commodity fetishism recently. Like, like it's kind of a popular reading of commodity fetishism of like, it's, oh, you think that this $100 Gucci t-shirt is valuable, but it's just the same value as this $5 Gucci, t- this $5 white t-shirt from Amazon. And it's like, that's not commodity fetishism, right? That's just like markets dictating mm-hmm. things, right? Commodity fetishism, to my understanding, is this understanding that all these things are inherently valuable beyond just having an assessment within this process. Mm-hmm. Because you have this thing like you bought this t-shirt and it is worth a hundred dollars because it is and not because it's 2004 and this brand is really hot mm-hmm. and people are buying it for a hundred dollars and so then in 2009 when it's worth 50 or worth 200 you get all confused but that's because you thought it was inherent mm-hmm. and that's a lot more of what i think when we talk about uh false needs created by capitalism when we talk about commodity fetishism and when we talk about alienation, we're not talking about people like literally just being dumb. I, I feel like so much critical theory gets read that way. It's just like, everybody's so dumb. They keep choosing bad things. Why don't they choose good things? Yeah, Which is like, true. that's okay. Like you're eighth grade poetry mode right now. Like this mm-hmm. isn't really a thing. It's, it's that because your whole life is dictated by the fact that you're supposed to have value and you're supposed to sell it. And the more value you have, the better. Um, and that if you really have a lot of value, then you start to own other people's value and you get to sell that mm-hmm. because of that, then we attach, you know, because we have, we don't have that critical view of that. We just see the world that way. And so then we walk into a store and if something has $20 of value, it's like, you say like, well, it's pretty good. Cause I'm worth 30,000. So if this thing is worth 20, then that's pretty, a pretty good deal for me, mm-hmm. which is like, no, <laughs> like that's not how humanity works, right? Your, your, your whole brain is being shaped around a system. And mm-hmm. in order to start to liberate yourself from it in some sort, some sort of way in your personal life, let's say, you have to have that critical view of saying like, 
hey, like this is just this is a system that is dictating things and it's all kind of bullshit. And that doesn't necessarily mean that you just don't engage with it at all. Mm -hmm. I mean, you have to make money to survive like that. If that is a fact, then that is a fact. Mm -hmm. But it's to say that you don't buy into it as being something of a religion, right? Something of the similar to a Bible where it's like, no, it says here that this is this. So I have to live by that. If I don't, then there's no meaning. Mm -hmm. And again, like this is where Buddhism is so great because Buddhism is just kind of like, man, forget all that. Forget all these ideas of like, you have to have a particular doctrine of all these abstract things that says what abstract things are. And this is what heaven is. And this is what value is, right? But Buddhism is like, so much of this is unknowable. But what we do know is you're suffering. So let's try to fix that, right? Yeah. And where does that come from? It comes from you wanting things. What do you want specifically? And Buddhism isn't even saying, like, don't desire. Um, I mean, monastics desire all the time. Monks desire all the time. But you have an awareness of the desire. And mm -hmm. so you also see when it makes you suffer. And when you are happy, you also see when it makes you happy, but you also know that it'll make you suffer. And so it's more so about... What am I going to choose now that I understand that that's happening? If I understand that my desire for this particular girl in school is causing me all of this suffering, is it worth it for me to keep desiring to be with her? Mm -hmm. Or should I just let that go? And that's, I think, more the question of like the, making those decisions in the present. Whereas so many people are just like, no, like it has to be things have to be things. Right. Mm -hmm. um, which I don't want to get into too much of like, uh, like, again, like abstraction of like things are not things actually, but it's the, it's the, it's the obsession with getting to a, to a perfect abstraction of life that is just sort of pointless. Um, and, yeah. and ironically makes you unable to see all the things that are sort of generally true because you can't accept them as having to be generally true. You, you have to make them abstractly, definitively, mm. like naturally true. Yeah. Which is just never, you're not going to win that one generally. Mm -hmm. No, I think uh, we're, we're nearing an hour. So I thought that this is actually a very good, I think that's a very good way to summarize um, what we've been talking about and just how Buddhism can provide some uh, frame of reference for specifically like leftist politics. Um is if, if you have any closing words, I know you also want to ask me a few questions. I can, we can, I can just pause it, run to the bathroom really quickly because I need to, and then you can ask the questions. But um, if you have any final words just for the, the podcast. Yeah. Um, well, I, I love your channel. I've loved it for like two, three years. I've listened to multiple episodes of this podcast. And I remember distinctly like uh, listening to the Amanda Mariano one, walking home one day and being like, man, what if I was on there? That would be so <laughs> sick. That would be like such a hallmark of my like success. And now here I am. So like, listen, yeah. dreams, dreams yeah. come true. Uh, life is good. And um, I think also like at the end of the day, like if you listen to anything that we're saying and, and think that we're wrong, then um, you're, you're just misinterpreting us and you didn't actually hear what we said. So Perfect. just listen Great. again. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. yeah. No, I, I think, I think personally, yeah, no, I mean, I wanted to have you as a guest. Like I, I really like your content. Um, I, it's very like, I don't know. I like, I like video essays that are like, they genuinely give me something to like chew on and you go deep enough into topics where it's like, 
it's actually providing something new and it's not just like the same kind of talking points you always see. So great job. Keep it up. <laughs> I mean, I think you should go to the restroom first, but when you come back, maybe yeah. you can talk about that too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all right. I'll just pause the, 